You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. This happened a long time ago, but I have been too embarrassed to tell the story until now. It had needed some years in between before I could uh, come to a place where I could tell it. Our church is laid out in a way because our founding pastor used to live on the north side of the property. For those of you that don't know direction, north is over here. And so he, he would lock up the church building after an evening service, and the lights were laid out so that he could turn off the lights as he made his way north. But when I came to be pastor, I actually lived on the south side of the property. And so I would come and I would have to turn out the lights on the the north side of the building and then walk through the building in the dark. And if you've ever been in a church alone at night in the dark, it can be a little creepy. All right. But I got to a place where I was kind of comfortable with it. I was used to walking through the church uh, by myself alone in the dark after I'd locked up. And I got kind of confident that I could, I could do it. And those of you, you made your way in the sanctuary, you know, it kind of, the hallway kind of makes a dog leg here and comes around. And one evening, we had had service. I'm sure I was thinking about things I should have said in my message, but didn't. And I turned out the lights, and I made my way across that back hallway. And much to my surprise, I walked straight into the wall at the end of the hall. And, and in that moment, it, it, it was... There's just so much confusion. If you've ever walked into a glass door that you thought was open, or you've walked into a piece of furniture in the middle of the night when you're making your way through the house, that moment it hurts, but it's also like, who attacked me? Like, I, I know that the wall is out there, but I really was convinced that I had plenty of room. And light in our homes, uh, in the church, is a good thing. The ability to be able to turn on the lights, flip a switch and have it on, is incredibly helpful. And we've become so dependent upon it that even when a storm comes and we lose power, we typically, when we walk into a room, even though we know the electricity is out, we still flip the switch on, right? We have that just reflex, reflex to to flip the switch on. Uh, And light is such an important part of our lives, and we are so blessed to be able to just flip on switches most of the time and have it. But for the people who lived in Jesus' time, it wasn't that readily available, You had to do some planning. You had to have some preparation. It was like when you go camping, you need to make sure that you have a lantern or a flashlight. You need to be ready to make light, to be able to make light. And it's in that setting that Jesus says these words in John chapter 8. He makes a statement about light. And when I read this, it's not going to seem that that extraordinary maybe at first, but I'm going to help us see why it is so, uh, why it's so culturally different or paradoxical for Jesus to make this statement. So in John chapter 8, and, and Jesus is speaking in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And you hear me say that right now, and it sounds like, okay, those are appropriate church words that's fitting. But I want you to see the reaction of the religious people who were in the crowd when Jesus says that. Verse 13, the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, therefore said unto him, thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. And that's just kind of a convoluted or fancy way of saying, you're lying. That's a a lie. 
Now, it may be that today, as I'm speaking to you this morning, that I say something that offends you. That's not my goal today. I don't want to try and offend you. We didn't invite you here today to offend you. But there are times that maybe I say something that people feel like, I can't believe that he believes that. I I can't believe that he thinks that. And they they walk out and they go, man, I, I, I don't understand that guy. That happens often. But in my 14 years here as pastor, nobody's ever stood up in the middle of a sermon and said, liar, you're lying. But that's what happens in this moment. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the people stand up, the religious leaders stand up and say, you're a liar. You're lying. And what happens here is they are so upset about what he says that they feel like they can't let him finish, that they have to interrupt him and call him out as a liar. And the reason that this is so controversial, the reason that they feel they have to stand up and say something is because when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, it was at this really important moment. And for us, 2,000 years later, we can't really appreciate the moment that Jesus... So let me try to transport you back in time so you can see why it was such a big deal for Jesus to say this in that moment. The Bible tells us in John chapter 7 that Jesus has come to be a part of the Festival of Tabernacles. It's this major religious holiday that the Jews would celebrate. And the way that they celebrated is they would go to Jerusalem and they would basically go camping. Everybody would set up their own little tent or tabernacle or construct a booth. Even the people who lived in Jerusalem would go on the roof of their house because many of them had patio rooftops and they would construct their tent and everybody lived outside. The reason they did that is because thousands of years before that, God had led the Israelites out of Egypt where they were slaves through the desert and they had lived in tents. And in the desert, as they lived in tents, God had provided for them and protected them. Now, when you're in the desert, there are a couple things that you really need. You need to find a source of food. God provided that for them. And you need to find a source of water. God also provided that for them. But there was this abnormal thing that God did to show them the way through the desert so that they didn't get lost and they could always sense that God's protection was nearby. During the day, there would be kind of this pillar of cloud that showed them which way they should go. And in the night, that pillar of cloud would be a pillar of flame or light that showed them that God was still with them. He was protecting them. And so when the people would come in for this festival, they would construct their booths, and then they would have moments where they would would draw water, and it would be this big procession through town, and we covered all of that last week. But they also would take these big candles, these large pillars of light that they would build. Now, the, the Jewish people, their priests, when they led in the temple, they wore these, these very fancy clothes. Uh, they wore these cloaks that were specific and special for leading in worship. And when they had worn these after a while, if they got worn out or they started to look a little dingy, they couldn't wear them, and so they would, they would throw them to the side and they would hold on to them all year. And then when it came time for the Feast of Tabernacles, they would take these clothes, these used-up garments, and they would wrap them around these large poles that were in front of the temple. Then they would take oil and pour the oil in basins, and that oil would soak up the clothes like a wick in a kerosene lamp. And they would light these large lamps at the first night of the tabernacle feast. And everybody in the city could see. And people would come, and they would sing songs there at the temple about how God had provided for them and protected them through the desert, how he had guided and directed them. 
The Bible says that like we had this group of people up here leading us in singing, that there would have been a band, uh, a group of instrumentalists who would have led the people in singing the old songs of their people. Today, Carrie and Tammy started us off by leading us in a couple of hymns. Those are older songs that our people have sung for many years. In the Bible, we have the book of Psalms, which is like their old hymn book. And they would tell them to sing a specific psalm. And some of the psalms that they would sing were psalms like Psalm 27.1, which says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, and whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 119.105 says, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 44 tells us that light is God in action. Psalm 36 tells us, With you is a fountain of light, and in your light we see. And so throughout this festival, they've got these large pillars of light in front of the temple, and they're gathering around there at the evening time and singing these songs, which talk about God being a light. At the end of that festival, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. And in that moment, it was clear to everyone that Jesus was putting himself in the place of the God who had led them through the desert, provided for them, been a light unto them, the God that they were celebrating through their songs and their feasts and the rituals. And Jesus is saying, I am that God. I am him. And so for us to hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, that might sound nice because we live in a culture where people say, oh, he is the light of my life, right? A lot of you, your wives say that about you, don't they? Yeah, right? But when Jesus says this, it's obvious that he's saying, I I am God. I am the one. Now, here's what's crazy about the fact that they respond as they do. If you go back to the time when the people were in the desert and Jesus or God was leading them through the desert, in Leviticus 23, God says there are going to be three festivals that you hold every year. And these festivals are so important that every family must show up at the temple to celebrate. Three weeks, every year, everyone had to come from the suburbs, had to come from the villages that they lived in, into Jerusalem to be a part of this feast. It was important. And what God was saying is, I want to set an appointment with you where three times a year we're going to get together and we're going to remember how I have helped you. And you're going to see who I am and what I'm about and my heart. We have these types of events now, don't we? We have holidays where we get together with family. We have reunions where we get together with people that we're close with, but perhaps distance or life just gets in the way. And so there need to be these scheduled times where we get together with those people. God said, when you get into this land, you're going to get busy with the agriculture and taking care of the land and building your cities. And we've got to set some appointments. We've got to set some times that we're going to get together so you don't forget about me, so that we stay close. And so every year they had these three festivals, these three feasts. And the whole point of the feast was that the people remember God and what he had done for them. They would know him and be close to him. And then Jesus shows up as God in the flesh. And he says, I am that God that you've been meeting with. And they don't recognize him. He shows up at the appointed time. He shows up at the festival and he says, I am here. And they don't recognize who he is. And what Jesus has been doing all throughout the Gospel of John, as we've looked at it over these last several weeks, is he's been showing them, I am who I say that I am. I can fulfill all of these needs that you have. 
Because that's what God has been doing all along. I hate that uh, Aiden, who is a young man in our church, um, he had an appendectomy this weekend, so he can't be with us today. I hate that um, I had talked to him a few weeks ago, and he's a Boy Scout. And he was talking about a hike that he'd gone on. And when they go on the hike, there are 10 essential items they absolutely have to have on the hike. Some of them are pretty obvious, right? Like a canteen of water, um, a flashlight, right? These are things that they absolutely have to have as they go on their journey. Those are things that are, are an essential And when God led the people through the desert, he provided them with all of the essentials that they couldn't find in the desert. And when Jesus shows up, he's doing the same thing by providing the people with everything that they need. And it might be that right now, you've got indoor plumbing, so you're not short on water. And you've got electricity, so you're not short on light. But there are some things in your life that are missing, that you kind of feel like you're in a desert place. Maybe there's a a drought of love and compassion. Maybe there's a a drought of feeling like you're connected, that you have close relationships. Maybe there's a a desert place in your life of of meaning and significance. You don't really feel like what you're doing matters or it's making a difference. You feel like you're just going to work every day because you have to to pay your bills and you're doing it week after week after week and you don't see an end in sight. Whatever the need is in your heart and life, Jesus came to provide that. And he says, I am the light of the world. And for us, that's something that we have readily at our disposal, but the people there did not. It was a big deal for them to be able to light a lamp in their home. Jesus comes into our world and he says, what is it that you're missing? What is it that you lack? I am coming to provide that. Because the truth is that every one of us is engineered, we're built to to be missing something until we find everything that we need in Jesus. And all of us have, have at some point in our lives experienced this search for meaning, this search for significance, this search for the thing that we feel like is missing from our lives. And no matter how hard we chase after it, no matter how hard we try, it, it doesn't fulfill. So Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the thing that you have been searching for. And it's so obvious what he is saying that the people stand up and they're upset. They're angry. They're mad. And so Jesus responds to them and he says, you are judging wrong. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but you cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. And really pay attention to verse 15. He says, you judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. Jesus says, you are, you're making your decision, you're making your judgment call on me based on all the wrong criteria. You are judging me after the flesh, and you don't even have the ability to make that judgment. So it's Friend Day, and, and the goal of Friend Day is to invite as many friends and family and neighbors as possible to join us. And many of you are here as our guests, and we're so glad that you're here. And so we, we would count that a success, that you came to join us today. But what if the way that we judge whether or not Friend Day was a success is how many donuts we ate? (laughs) 
right? That would be the wrong criteria to determine if this was a success, right? Because I could eat six, and some of you could eat maybe half that, and we, 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 could, we could go over and above on eating donuts, and we'd just be sick, and we'd be like, this was successful, this is great. That would be the wrong criteria. Now imagine if not only did we have the wrong criteria, we were counting the wrong things, we got my son, who just started kindergarten, to be the one who's going to stand outside and count the donuts. Because we're going to get to about maybe 11, and then after that, he's just going to make up stuff. It's going to go 11, 3,000, 75. That would not only be counting the wrong criteria, it would be using a broken system because he doesn't know yet how to count. And what Jesus says to them here, he says, you're looking at the wrong signs and you don't even know how to look for the right thing. You are judging on the wrong criteria and you don't have the ability to even know or understand or count what really counts. Your criteria is wrong and your system is broken. And so Jesus says to them, he says, you judge after the flesh, but I judge no man. Now, why would Jesus say that? Because other places we know that he refers to himself as a righteous judge. The reason Jesus says that is because if that is the thing that we think of as judging, then Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus doesn't judge like we judge. He says, you judge after the flesh. You're looking on the outward. You don't think that I am who I say I am because I don't look like what you were expecting. You're judging on the outward. That's not how I judge. And if that is judging, then no, I don't judge. But then he goes in the next verse, he says, but if I do judge, my testimony is true because I know how to look for the things that really matter. Now hear this, okay? What Jesus is telling them in this moment is that he is able to look at the things that actually matter and he makes his judgment based upon Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And they say, no, you're not. And they get it all backwards as if they're walking with their eyes closed in a room with no light. And they run into the wall. Jesus says, you're judging on based on the wrong thing. And then I want us to go backwards to the beginning of John chapter 8, where we're going to see a, a story where Jesus demonstrates this to them. So John chapter 8 and verse 3, this happens right before this passage we read. This is what happens. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him, brought unto Jesus, a woman taken in adultery. And that means just what it sounds like. They found a woman, caught her in the act of adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. And in case you didn't catch me, they said, Jesus, in the very act, we caught her. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Now, in the biblical sense, stone doesn't mean what it means today. In the biblical sense, stone means it was an execution by people picking up rocks and killing someone. And so they're saying, Jesus, we have laws that say that a person who is caught in this situation should be killed. What do you say? Verse 6 gives us the, the picture of their hearts. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. So the whole reason they're asking Jesus this question is because if he says, yes, you should do what the law says, they can say, can you believe how judgmental and harsh Jesus is? If Jesus says, no, you should not stone her, they'll say, he doesn't believe the law. 
He doesn't uphold righteousness. This is their heart. And Jesus can see this because he doesn't judge men after the flesh. He sees the heart. He sees the soul. He knows this. So I want you to see how Jesus reacts. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So these people, they come to Jesus, they have this woman. They're wanting him to render a judgment. And his response is, at first, to act like he doesn't even hear them. And man, just studying this passage this week, God has really spoken to my heart about, we live in an age where people, we go zero to 100 on everything right now, don't we? I mean, everything. We go zero to 100, immediately upset. I don't know that we know how to be mildly irritated anymore. We're just either fine or livid, angry. And they come, and, and they're at 100. They, they've got stones in their hands ready to kill this woman, and Jesus doesn't meet their level. And that's what we do, isn't it? When somebody goes 0 to 100, we go, I can go 125, buddy. <laughs> Your ceiling is my floor, all right? We, I, I can take it to the next level. But what Jesus does instead is he kind of acts like, oh, I'm sorry, were you talking to me? What? Acts as if he doesn't even hear them. He draws in the dirt. You know who I've seen do this? I've seen my kids do this. I tell them to do something and they act like they have never heard me. Their hearts are not pure in it. Jesus is this. Jesus... He's just writing in in the dirt. Now, I've talked a lot about Jesus writing in the dirt. Let's remember, they've brought a woman that they have caught in the act of adultery. And we could talk at length about how did that happen? Did they set this up? Where is the man? Because, I mean, to catch her in the act of adultery, there had to be someone else in the scenario. Where's he at? They've only brought her. They've thrown her down at Jesus' feet. She is cowering there, waiting for rocks to start hitting her. And Jesus, in this tense moment, remains calm. And he writes in the dirt. And they press him. And Jesus stands up and says, He who is without sin cast the first stone and then goes back to writing in the dirt. Now, John does not tell us what Jesus is writing in the dirt. And there's a lot of speculation about what he was writing in the dirt. Maybe he was writing the names of the people who were standing there. People that he didn't even really know, but because he's Jesus, he knew. Maybe he's writing out the sins or the secrets of the people standing there. Maybe he's just drawing. We don't know. But he's demonstrating to them that He is not approaching the situation as they would approach it. He looks at a different set of criteria, and he judges differently. And then John tells us that they, moved in their own conscience, begin to leave oldest 
to young guys. Now, why is that? Why is it that they leave oldest to youngest? Well, remember, they've showed up here with rocks in hand, ready to stone this woman if Jesus says so, that then they can accuse him. And Jesus stands up. The only time he stands up, he looks at them and says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their rocks and walk away. Why oldest the youngest? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I think the older we get, the more robust of a list we have of sins that we have committed. The younger we are, the more that we feel like we're an expert, right? I mean, when we're in our 20s, we're convinced we know everything, right? Those of you that are in your 20s, I'm sorry, but I was in my 20s once, and, and I know. I went to a conference um, last year, and um, there was a young pastor who went, and um, I'm in my 30s, and he's in his early 20s, and he's, he's at this conference with me, and I'm there with my notebook open. I'm just wanting to receive some spiritual truth and some ministry leadership insight, and everything that the guy would say, he'd be like, yep, no, I wouldn't do it that way. And I mean, you know, at first I was like a little annoyed, and um, I didn't go zero to 100, but I was slowly building there. And finally, at lunch, I looked at him and I said, hey, man, when we go on this next session, I want you to look around and I want you to notice how all the people who are older than us are just shaking their head and taking notes. Because they've been in ministry long enough to realize they don't know what they're doing. Most people come to Jesus when they're a child. And I think the reason that many people don't come to Jesus in their late teens, early 20s, 30s, is because they feel like they don't need him. And when we get a little bit older, we come to a place where we realize that we do need him. We feel like we've done too much to deserve him. And so from the oldest to the youngest, they just keep dropping their rocks and walking away. And eventually Jesus looks up from his writing in the dirt. And he looks at the woman and he says, Where are those who condemn thee? And she spent this whole time just waiting for a rock to hit her. Hopeful that the first one is, is right in her head that just takes her out so she doesn't have to experience this painful experience of being pelted with all these rocks. She has thought that her life is over, but in this moment when she looks up and there is no one left, in those moments where she can hear the rocks hitting the dirt and people walking away, she suddenly has a little bit of hope. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none left, Lord. And then Jesus says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And what Jesus has demonstrated here is that he has not come to bring condemnation. We are condemned already. He tells us in John 3 that Jesus, the Savior, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, that through him the world might be saved. And so wherever you're at in this story, 
Whether you could identify with the woman who's been accused, who feels guilty and broken, feels that your hands are too dirty to lift them up to the Lord in praise, feel like it's no wonder people are throwing rocks at me, I deserve it. Or you're the person that has rocks in hand, ready to judge someone else, ready to throw down on someone else, ready to go to the next level in your anger. You feel totally righteous wherever you're at in this spectrum. Jesus has come to save you from that, from your brokenness, from your self-righteousness. Whether you feel like you're such an expert, you don't need Jesus, or you feel like you're so broken you don't deserve Jesus, He came to save you. He doesn't judge like this world judges. I know for some of you, it may have been a really big deal to walk in the door today because you've experienced judgment. You've experienced being made to feel less than. And that's the way our world operates. We're constantly sizing one another up. And Jesus says, I did not come to play that game. That's not the reason I'm here. I came not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's telling us that in a world of darkness, he's that light of hope. In a place that is a desert, barren land, he's a drink of water. And he has come so that we might be saved. That's the reason he came. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment?